Welcome to the program. I'm talking to Mr. Jeff Wells. He's a consultant urologist at Box Hill Hospital and quite a vocal uh, opponent of lockdowns in Greater Melbourne. Now, Jeff, you were involved in the COVID Doctors Network last year, which uh, wrote that open letter to the government pleading for an end to the you know hard stage four lockdowns, and that was a year ago. Um, Jeff, what do you think? We're, we're back. We're back to square one, and we're um, we've got the hardest level of lockdowns that we've had, and we've chalked up almost seven months of lockdown now. Yes, yes, we certainly haven't um, made any significant progress, have we? Mm. I think this is basically because um, the lockdowns are basically flawed. I mean, we aren't going to get rid of this virus just by locking the population down. Mm. This, we have to learn to live with this virus. And at this present stage, the government doesn't seem to have got the message. It's basically creating far more harm than good and we're seeing it as we've spoken previously Pierce, through all levels of society from the very young through to the very old and it's tragic and i can't really see a way out at the present time so very very disheartening the only way out if that's possible is that the government has to change its strategy and listen to the doctors, the people involved who are going to, who can give some accurate information from the coalface about the tragic effects of these continual lockdowns on all our members of society. Yep. And Jeff, you've been talking to uh, lots of doctors over the course of this pandemic and what's what's your general read from from the doctors that you talk to who are at the coalface in in greater melbourne well most of the doctors not all of them but the vast majority of doctors basically now aghast at the harm that's occurring especially to teenagers Mm. now we all know young children are, uh, are doing it tough um Young people with families are doing it tough. The elderly feel isolated. But the big concern is to teenagers. That's especially the girls between 14 and 16 or 17 who are in their last years of school. The boys as well, obviously. Mm. But uh, we're seeing, as we've said previously, we're seeing increased uh, anxiety, depression, self-harm, eating disorders. And it would appear that uh, the percentage, that the number of suicides is also increasing. Mm. We know from um, the uh, Kids Helpline that the number of um, uh, messages coming from the Kids Helpline tells us that the number of inquiries has increased by about 185%. So this is very, very worrying. Mm. Um, Psychologists are extremely worrying. The general practitioners are extremely worried. Yeah. Basically, they're saying that they haven't seen anything like it. And we've well, been speaking to Michael Carr, Greg. He said he's never seen, you know, a foremost Melbourne psychologist, he said he's never seen anything like this in 30 years of practice. Well, no one has seen anything like this, have they? And I mean, this this sort of a giant social experiment that's being conducted by the, the Andrews government, 
locking everyone down as they are and, and imposing a curfew, which a lot of people just don't really see any advantage to. I mean, I, I've heard police say it makes policing easy because the only people out between those hours from 9pm to 5am are, are crooks, basically. Uh, but but it, it sort of makes that easy. But I mean, in terms of what it actually does, what it achieves, it's it's really hard to to quantify. And that was one of the criticisms last year when they had a curfew in Greater Melbourne for that parts of that 100-day-plus lockdown that we had. It's not being used in New South Wales, which clearly there's a different political approach in New South Wales to lockdowns. And some people would argue that's it's that that approach that's caused New South Wales to have the sort of numbers that, that uh, growing numbers, you know, well over 600 now per day. And a lot of those happening, you know, when they were in the wild without being aware that they had the virus, but they're out in the, in the open spreading it around. Do you think the approach in, in Sydney is appropriate given their numbers now? Well, the first thing I'd say, P.S. is there's no scientific evidence that curfews have any effect on case numbers whatsoever. Mm. I think with New South Wales, the, the difference between New South Wales and Victoria is that I think in a funny sort of way, the government in New South Wales might be a little bit kinder than the government we have here. Mm. I think one of the big issues here is the punitive measures that the government is undertaking. Now, this seems to me to be totally out of hand. It's turning Victoria into a totalitarian state that we have never known to exist previously. Mm. But I think the issue that may have broken the camel's back, as we have spoken about uh, recently, was when the epidemiologists stated that children going to fun parks could spread the virus and worsen the outcome. You mean to, to playgrounds? Playgrounds, fun parks, skate parks, mm. all the things that young people do. Mm. So... To ban these is, in my view, absolutely ludicrous. It makes no common sense. It shows that the epidemiologists, once again, are scientists who are just dealing with numbers and they don't have a holistic approach to health. And I think this is one of the areas that a lot of the supposed health advice is coming straight from epidemiologists yep. and not from doctors. And it's about time that doctors were listened to because... As we've said previously, when we spoke to Martin Foley a year ago, <coughs> we pleaded with him, mm. as we've said, mm. to get doctors involved, to formulate a policy that was kinder <coughs> and would have not the disastrous effects that lockdowns have. But, would, of course, the government haven't listened to us. Wouldn't they, wouldn't they respond that they take advice? And I've heard Dan Andrews say this repeatedly, that he is just listening to expert medical advice coming from the chief health officer. Yes. So, first of all, we don't know who's giving him this, the Chief Health Officer, this advice. And secondly, is it just the Chief Health Officer who's advising the Premier, or is it the big four, which is Johannes Weimar, Martin Foley, and Daniel Andrews himself, as well as Brett Sutton? Hmm. So, <clears throat> these are the four people who seem to be involved, and I don't think they've got the experience or the uh, mental aptitude to be able to make these huge decisions, mm. especially if it's just Brett Sutton. I mean, we've spoken about Brett Sutton before. Four years ago, he was 
an accident and emergency registrar at Sandringham Hospital. He then did a Master of Public Health at James Cook University. He wrote two papers, one on gonorrhea and the other one on climate change. He became Chief Health Officer. He subsequently became was Dr Sutton and after a couple of weeks as Dr Sutton, he became Professor Sutton. He's an adjunct professor, not a uh, not an academic professor. <clears throat> and I really think that we have to have a much broader uh, infiltration of knowledge to make these huge decisions that are affecting everyone in Victoria. Yep. So can we draw the distinction between New South Wales and, uh, and Victoria in terms of numbers? I mean... <laughs> See, the argument that the Victorian government is using, and they'll just keep on using this, is that because it's Delta, it's that much more infectious and easily uh, transmitted from person to person that that it requires a a very hard response. And the Doherty research that was released and that the modelling that they did, which apparently is actually kind of optimistic, that seems to be what I've heard about that that modelling that was released, you may have other things to say, but in fact, it it supported short, sharp lockdowns as a way to approach uh, Delta. And it kind of vindicated, politically vindicated, the stance of of the Victorian government and was in some ways at odds with the response of of the New South Wales government, which was slower to act. And I agree with you completely. They are a government who were very reluctant to interfere with people's lives for any more than they had to. You know, they really did believe the idea and, and probably still do that, that lockdowns are an absolute last resort, which they should be. But given their numbers are where they are and we're dealing with Delta, do you think that changes the, the argument about lockdowns? No, I don't, Chris. First of all, the Doherty Institute has said that short, sharp lockdowns are the way to go. Well, we've had three short, sharp lockdowns, or two. We've had the circuit breaker lockdown, which is number four. Mm-hmm. We had that for 10 days, short, sharp lockdown. Came out of it a week later, we went back into another one. The next lockdown, number five, short and sharp for 10 days. Then on the Wednesday, there were no cases. By the next day, we were back in lockdown. And the lockdown cases and the number of cases since we've been in lockdown is steadily increasing. So, to me, the short, sharp lockdown message doesn't work. It's causing more harm than good. The Sydney uh, cases are increasing, but as I see it, Pierce, we've been in lockdown, and I wouldn't be surprised if we have as many cases that Sydney's got in a couple of weeks' time because this lockdown might be uh, sharp, but it won't be short. I can tell you, I don't, uh, from what I've heard, the lockdown's going to go until at least the end of the school holidays, which is probably another four weeks. Jeez. So I don't think short, sharp lockdowns are the answer. I think we have to learn to live with the virus. We've had viruses forever. Now, uh, I know we don't want to trivialise this virus, but as we've said previously, we need to make sure the vulnerable are vaccinated. And who are the vulnerable? They're the people over 85 or probably 80. Mm. Um, They're also the people who are at uh, risk. They might have obesity, they might have diabetes, they might be immunocompromised. Uh, These people all absolutely have to be vaccinated. The healthcare workers attending these people all need to be vaccinated. And then we need to live with common sense. 
we need to have social distancing. Perhaps we can have continue to have masks indoors. But people are social beings. We need to be able to get out and exercise, play whatever sport we want, whether it's tennis, golf, swimming, going to the gym. We need to be able to have people around in our homes. No, we're not saying we need to have big parties. We can maybe have a, a, a limit of six to eight people. But we need to be able to live our lives sensibly, but to continue to have productive social and economic lives. Mm. I mean, just locking things, the whole state down, doesn't work. What do these people think? We're just going to lock the state down and then in four to six weeks' time we'll unlock it and the, and the virus in that period of time will have disappeared? I mean, this is nonsensical. Mm. It doesn't make any sense to me or to most of my doctor friends at all. And lockdowns basically have only been used in the last 18 months to two years and they originated out of China. Previously, we've never had lockdowns like this. So I, I, I think um, we've got to learn to live with the virus and look after people in society, get back to where we are. I tell you what, we are not a caring society at the present time. I mean, all the social effects of lockdown, the, the, the level of anger and fear is escalating the whole time. Yeah. I was talking with um, someone this morning and we were just saying how really uncertain the current environment is on so many levels. You know, there's uncertainty about the virus. There's uncertainty about new variants of the virus. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty about jobs, about, you know, your plans. I mean, the amount of times that, you know, people have tried to book holidays, myself included, and had them had just had to throw the whole thing out. Uh, you, you know, there's a lot of work that's happening, which is just simply unwinding things that you've tried to organize you know in, on one level or another it might be a business meeting it might be a holiday it might be a school camp all these things and, and you know sending the money off to do the school camp having it refunded it's just it's like people are just spinning their wheels because there's, there's just no ability to plan anything it is unprecedented this is the first time in in uh, in my life and and in fact in generations that that anything like this has happened we are in the middle of a, of, of a big social experiment, really. We, we know the effects which you've mentioned, which is the personal well-being, uh, your health is degrading in lockdown, your spiritual health and your mental health are all degrading, not to mention your, your hip pocket is being degraded in most people's case uh, in one form or another. Uh, but but what, what's going to be the long-term effect of this? And, and you know, the, the milestone has been passed. I think uh, it's today that we have have had 200 days in lockdown in Victoria. The first lockdown was March to May in 2020. That was 43 days. Lockdown two was July to October. That was the big one last year for Greater Melbourne, 111 days. And then then there was a couple of short ones. And, uh, and now we're... Uh, what are we up to? About two and a half, three weeks and counting. And, and really no... No guarantee that we're going to get to uh, an acceptable number for the Victorian government, which seems very averse to any kind of death toll. Now, this is something that, you know, I think it needs to be made clear to people. I, I just looked at the latest figures from the federal government on, on who has died 
the age groups that have died of COVID. So we've had 970 deaths in total in the pandemic. 75% of them were people 80 years and older. And if you look at 70 years and older, that's 92%. So I guess what, what is that saying? It's saying that, that most people don't have a problem with the virus, even if they get it. That's exactly right, Des. What it says is, first of all, those figures are uh, absolutely accurate. Average age of death from COVID is 86 years. So we're not trivialising the virus, but viruses mutate and they will continue to mutate. This is why we have to get a different flu vaccination every year. But as we've said previously, if you're vulnerable and you've been vaccinated, the chance of dying is markedly diminished. Now, we must remember, P.S., that we've had nearly a 1,000 deaths, but most of these deaths occurred before we had the vaccination Mm. of the elderly people. Mm. So it's hard to get figures on what's the death rate post-vaccination of the vulnerable, but the death rate is extremely low. Now, we all know that people die. As we've stated previously, two things in life, without being flippant, are death and taxes. Everyone dies. So, and there have been a couple, a a, a very small number of young people dying, Um, but most of the the young people who have died, I think in all instances, just about have had significant comorbidities. But we we have to say that at some stage, some people are going to die of the virus. Now, we've said the figures previously, 160,000 people die every year in Australia. 110 people die every day in Victoria. So what we really have to do, and what I really would like to ask the Premier, is how many young people's lives are we going to destroy to stop one COVID death? We have to turn the argument round 180 degrees, Pierce, Mm. and this is the question. Uh, We know people are going to die of the virus, but what, to what extent are we going to harm our young people in particular to stop a death? This is the antithesis of what the epidemiologists are saying, but this is what doctors do. Doctors evaluate risk in a much better way than epidemiologists. We, we're always evaluating risk. Patient would come in to see me. I, I have to say, does this patient need an operation, yes or no? Does he need further investigations? Does he need a second opinion? The second opinion is what I think is, you know, it's critical in um, medicine. If people are unhappy, they ask for a second opinion and we give a second opinion. Now, as doctors, we are very unhappy with the course of action the government is taking. We're asking for a second opinion. They're not, number one, they're not even listening to us. They're not even giving us any chance to have a second opinion. Mm. And I know doctors that have spoken to, uh, written numerous letters to uh, Brett Sutton and to Martin Foley, sent them emails, tried to contact them, and they've been all absolutely ignored. Mm. I was just speaking to a GP today. She sent numerous letters to those aforementioned people, totally ignored, no response. It's pretty bizarre behaviour, isn't it? I think it's very bizarre behaviour. So why do you think they are so averse to any deaths? Like, I mean, the, the thing that I found 
I don't understand really is that given we are completely vulnerable to the reintroduction of the virus, so we get the numbers down, right? And they say it's zero or it's close to zero and there's no community transmission and the people who've got it are in isolation for the whole period of of being infectious. Then we get to that point and then we open up again. But then... We, we get reinfected. I mean, it's happened in New Zealand. There's, there's 12 cases or something in Auckland. And New Zealand's, I mean, if you think Victor, Australia's a fortress, New Zealand is a total fortress. Yes, and, I know. And, and they've got, that's how quickly that's, that's, that situation has changed. And, and I'm, you know, that's, that's very unfortunate for, for New Zealand. But it's, it's reality. Yeah. So, so why, what is the rationale of the government? If, given that we've seen this happen on several occasions already, you get, to, you get to an acceptable number, you open up again, and the disease gets reintroduced. As it can happen even during lockdown, this is what's happening. The case that went to, that, that's infected Auckland is apparently out of New South Wales. I just don't understand. What, what is the government's response to this? Do, you, do they have a response? Are you aware of their rationale for answering that? No, I, I don't think they've got any long-term response at all. They haven't thought what's going to happen in the future. They have no plan. I mean, Daniel Andrews has spent two hours every day for the last year, apart from when he was unwell, at a, pe- at a press conference where there has been no exchange of ideas. Mm. He's basically been totally preaching to the converted mm. and... It's one of the most undemocratic processes that I've ever seen. I think it's absolutely appalling. The journalists are hand-picked. The questions are cherry-picked. I would love to go to a conference and ask him two or three pertinent questions, as we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. The chance of me getting into that conference is zero. I've asked journalists time and time again, you can't get into the conference now, this is not democracy. We are not living in a democratic society at the present time. And I don't understand what the fear factor from the government is. It's almost as though you can die, as, as we all say as doctors, listen, you can die from anything, but you can't die of COVID. And this is classical of even the, the Western Australian Premier, who's basically said that we will guarantee, I guarantee we will not have a death from COVID. I mean, this is just a transformation and excluding all other forms of illness, as we've discussed previously. Mm -hmm. It's it's ignoring the deaths from cancer, from cardiovascular disease, from neurological disease, from dementia. These are the common causes that actually the common causes of death and illness are being neglected because of this virus. Now, this doesn't make sense. I, I, I find it very perplexing because I think the politicians are having far too much influence. You know, like a GP said to me, I spoke to him, this fellow's 78, he's actually in Daniel Andrews' election at Noble Park. Name's Bruce Fountain, he won't mind me mentioning it. And uh, he rang me up, he said to me, uh, he was talking about a case, and when we uh, finished that discussion, I said to him, Bruce, have you seen any cases of COVID? And he said, Jeffrey, I haven't seen one case of COVID, but I've seen a lot of family violence. Mm. And I think this is basically, in a nutshell, that we're, we're creating a disease that's almost worse than the virus itself, mm. and that's fueled by anxiety, fear, and all the results of lockdown. 
So again, their their justification, their their difference that they would say that applies to COVID over something like cancer is they'd say, well, this is a highly transmissible disease. It's also more dangerous. It's more deadly than the, the variety that we were dealing with last year. That's I mean, what they're saying about Delta, yes, and you know, that's exactly what the epidemiologists say. Look, we're uh, too many cases for contact tracing. The genomic sequencing is of Delta virus. It's highly transmissible. It's highly uh, infectious. They're a little bit uncertain about the virulence of it, but a lot of them are saying it is more virulent. But the bottom line is because of this, we must, we, we must lock down. Mm. And unless we change this uh, thought pattern, we won't get anywhere. You forwarded me a message that you'd received from a colleague. I think it was it was an epidemiologist. Uh, yes. and, and, they, and they were suggesting that while they could see your point of view and they agree that neither response, lockdown or otherwise, they don't like the side effects of lockdown, but they also said that, that in New South Wales, with the numbers that they've got there, that lockdown really is the best approach for now. Yes. Well, it's, it's interesting because when you look at the Barrington Review, mm. uh, which is a, a, re, a review about whether we should or should not lock down. And the doctors in the Barrington Review basically said we should lock down if the ICUs and hospitals are totally full of patients. Now, if that's the case, then I can understand to some justification where we should have significant isolation of people. We have been told by the epidemiologists in the past that the hospitals are going to be over full, you know, we're going to need um, 4,000 respirators, ICUs are going to be over full. Well, this hasn't happened. Now, hopefully it won't happen, but we're a, a long, long way away from that, you know, where we're locking down initially for three or four cases. Mm. But, you know, we, we're locked down now and there are more and more cases every day. So the lockdown to me is not the answer and but again see they the argument from dan andrews and his cohorts would be oh, that would be that if we weren't locked down we'd have even more cases well that's exactly that's what that's what they'll be saying yeah well my my view to that is <clears throat> we need to deal with um deaths so we need to be reporting how many people have died. Now, uh, um, as we were saying, we're not trivialising the deaths, but in New South Wales, people keep talking of cases, the PCR cases. A lot of these cases, the majority of them are asymptomatic. We might have six, 600 cases a day. It's a PCR test. The number of people dying every day in, in New South Wales, two or three people are dying a day. Obviously, this is a concern, but, you know, we've had reports where a 90-year-old person died and it's been reported as a tragedy well it's not really a tragedy it's more reality mm -hmm. it's a tragedy if a young person dies yes it's unexpected but a 90 year old person in palliative care and then they said the patient was unvaccinated well if you're in palliative care why would you want to be vaccinated if you've got a chronic condition yeah 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 exactly what, what what's the, the, yeah, what do you yeah. make of the this these claims that delta affects younger people in a way that the earlier variants from last year didn't um look I, i'm not really uh, well enough informed to, to give a variation to, to give a, a, an accurate opinion on that uh piece i mean it does seem to be more virulent um but certainly we're not seeing uh any uh, significant increase in deaths, in, 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 uh, especially in children under 10. 
But it seems like there's a lot more, there's more cases in New South Wales hospitals of younger people. I think it's something like 20, 25% now are under the age of 30 or thereabouts. Okay. Okay. Uh, So, I I mean, it just, it just seems that, I mean, that is one of the, the differences with Delta that's being, um, that's, that's of concern is that it's, it is affecting younger people. Now that hasn't been borne out in those statistics yet, but I guess the statistics of deaths that we've had in Australia, you know, they're based on, well, the majority of the time was not dealing with Delta. So those, those figures may change. It may be younger groups, uh, younger age groups, uh, that start to, to figure more prominently in those, uh, death statistics from COVID. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I suppose that is a possibility. Let's hope it's not the case. I still don't think it, you know, it's going to justify just locking everything down because at some stage we have to come out of a lockdown. And then you wind up just having that same repetition of, you know, a, another incursion of the, the virus yeah. by yeah. plane or by car or however it happens, and you're back to square one and you lock down again. So unless yeah. you can use the time of lockdown to do something to, to improve your standing against the virus, and I guess one thing that, that, one thing that is happening, but it can happen regardless of lockdown, is getting vaccinated. Yes. Um, and and you don't need to have a lockdown to get large numbers of people vaccinated. No, exactly. Um, exactly. That's the only other thing I'd, I'd like to say about vaccination, Pierce. Mm. If you give people choice, it causes confusion. Now, we've had a lot of confusion about the AstraZeneca vaccination compared with the Pfizer vaccination. Some of it's come from uh, national broadcasters and people there have been saying, wait for the Pfizer there's been an enormous amount of confusion in the community about this, and as a result, we've had vaccine hesitancy. Mm. Now, what we're saying to people is, please get vaccinated. It doesn't matter which one you have. Both the vac- vaccines are the same. We've got the third one coming in, the Moderna. The vaccines are all the same. If you can get access to a vaccine, just get it as soon as you can. Please don't think that the AstraZeneca is inferior to the uh, Pfizer vaccine. It certainly is not. Okay, and the side effects of of um, of side effect profile are, are similar, mm-hmm. absolutely similar as far as we know. Why did all this get so mismanaged? I mean, the media has got a role in it. It seems to me the media, the mainstream media, has has concentrated on these few examples of of bad side effects that people have had, blood clotting, those kind of yeah, uh, incidents. I think, yeah, I think basically, Pierce, it's pretty simple. Bad news sells papers. Right. Yeah. Just on the subject of vaccines, it's being suggested by UK researchers recently that because there's now Delta variant and there's other possible variants emerging, I think there's the Lambda variant has surfaced in South America. Pfizer and I think AstraZeneca as well are looking at tweaking their vaccines to incorporate protection against some of those new strains. There is talk already of a third shot being required to to keep up the protection that those vaccines give to the already vaccinated populations in the West, in developed countries. Uh, But these researchers in in the UK, uh, I think they're in Oxford University, are saying that, uh, that we should actually be giving it, the West should be giving up that third dose 
and sending it off to the third world because the risk is that if, if the virus goes unchecked, there's no protection from vaccines or from effective vaccines in the third world, then, then that yeah. is a sort of a very fertile ground for uh, variants and possibly a super variant or a Delta plus it's been dubbed, which could be so bad that uh, so not only more infectious and deadly, but but also it could even could even circumvent the protection that that the existing vaccines offer people. We're talking about the mainstream Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca. Do you think that's a good idea? I mean, Indonesia is, has got a, a very big outbreak there, which is uh, pretty much running wild, unchecked, unable to be checked by authorities. Do you think that's a, a good thing to do, that, that that third dose that might have been earmarked for Western countries uh, gets gets uh, diverted to the third world where it's needed? Well, I think there's, it's like a lot of things in life, doesn't it? It comes down to supply and demand. Now, if they can supply enough vaccine, then it's not an issue. Mm. AstraZeneca can, instead of making one million a week, if they can make two million a week, if they can double output, then we don't have to get concerned about this. Mm. On the other hand, if there is a maximum issue and that we can't, uh, you know, we, we, we need more of the vaccine, we can't produce enough, then it seems, it does seem uh, reasonable to give people in the third world vaccination. I mean, when you look across how disease occurs, you can see diseases like yellow fever and whatever, they only occur in Africa, don't they, in South America. And so a worldwide blanket is basically, I would think, what we need. The other problem, of course, is mutation. And this is just what happens with the flu, where you have to get a new flu vaccine every year. Viruses mutate all the time. So, And that, that comes back to, uh, to something that I've spoken to you about before, which is the idea of herd immunity, it's coming into question. So we were all told uh, last year that, oh, yeah, we'll get to herd immunity and then we'll all be sorted and life can go back to normal. But there are now now scientists saying uh, that herd immunity is maybe even impossible to achieve with COVID. If it mutates, you won't get herd immunity. Right. It keeps mutating. Yep. If it, if it doesn't mutate, you will. But if it keeps mutating, it's like the flu. You know, the flu virus mutates every year virtually. So you, you might get immunity, herd immunity for the flu for one year, but next year you've got a different variant, which is why, you know, sometimes the injections for the flu are, are very successful and sometimes they're not. So it just depends on the mutation. And these viruses mutate very, very quickly because they're pretty simple things, viruses. They don't have cell walls, but they're, as we've said previously, antibiotics kill bacteria antibiotics do not kill viruses there's no. very few good antiviral drugs around yep which is which is which is the uh, other part of the problem the other end of the ledger what are the antivirals like and we, we don't have great antiviral drugs is uh, it true that mrna technology that that's behind pfizer and moderna that can be used against other viruses apart from uh, coronavirus they might be able to help against skin cancer, that technology. Yeah, it could. Yeah, it could. And I think these new vaccines are absolutely new new world experiences. It's like a lot of the immunotherapy drugs that we've got, you know, the drugs for melanoma. Mm. Uh, they're just life-changing. So hopefully we can get some life-changing uh, antiviral agents. Yeah. So you know, it's one step past the, um, the vaccine. Mm. 
I'm curious to uh, to hear what you think about this. It's a little bit off track, but do, what what do you think about the origins of of uh, coronavirus? Do you think it's uh, it's leaked out of a lab in uh, Wuhan, or do you think this is uh, naturally evolved and transferred from bats or or reptiles or something to to humans? What's your feeling about that? My feeling about that is. It's far too difficult for me to answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I, I, so you don't know, I, essentially. I think it's a little bit about like a person that fell down the stairs will never know the true answer. Ah, okay. That's a good answer there. And uh, I mean, I guess if you don't know the answer, then don't give an answer. Um, That's exactly right. And, and don't think that you, are, you should be giving an answer like some, yes. some people do. So, Jeff, uh, to wrap it up, one of the, the key arguments is in support of lockdowns has been to stop the health system being overloaded. And, and, and that means stopping hospitals being full. Um, I did see on the news recently there were ambulances queuing outside a Sydney hospital. What do you think about the, the likelihood of that being a problem? And, a, and is that a valid justification in Victoria now with, or in Melbourne with the, the uh, Greater Melbourne hard lockdown that we've, we've got? In the past, we've cut elective surgery in hospitals in Melbourne when the ICUs had no patients in them. To me, this is absolutely absurd. I totally understand cutting elective surgery if the hospitals, the ICUs are full, if the ICUs are not full, then the reason to cut elective surgery is ridiculous. Now, at the same token, I know this has been the case in Sydney where some hospitals are full, but this is what we call being on bypass, Pierce, and hospitals are on bypass, not infrequently, um, especially in the winter months. Ambulances are told not to go to Hospital A because it's full, we go to Hospital B. But I don't know how many public hospital beds there are in New South Wales. I think there's four or 500 patients, maybe five or 600 patients in hospital. But I would imagine in New South Wales they've probably got, uh, I'd be guessing, but that, I would think that they would have had at least six to 7,000 public hospital beds. So I don't really think that overall the, the public hospital system's been grossly overloaded. At, at, at this stage, and certainly, and certainly not in Victoria. No, definitely not in Victoria. Mm. We've had two deaths mm. in Victoria mm. in the last year. Twenty-five thousand, more than twenty-five thousand people since January will have died in Victoria. We've had two deaths from COVID. Mm. So there might be a couple of patients in hospital in, with COVID at the moment. We're certainly not hearing of, uh, of significant uh, morbidity from the disease in Melbourne, but we're certainly hearing of the cases, and the cases are increasing every day. Mm. Well, this is what happens with viruses. They spread, they spread quickly, and we have to think of morbidity rather than cases, and the cases certainly will will increase. But if we use common sense, social distancing, we should still be able to have satisfactory lives without the oppression of of lockdown. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Jeffrey Wells, urologist at Box Hill Hospital. And and Jeff, you're uh, organising the Doctors Against Lockdown group. Yes, yes. So we're we're endeavouring to get some uh, communication out to the public in the next couple of days, uh, Pierce. Okay. Uh, outlining what's happening in, in particular to adolescent health, because this is what we're we're very very concerned about. All right. Thank you very much for your time today, and good luck with your efforts to 
hopefully bring a, an end to this uh, really prolonged lockdown that we've been enduring in Victoria and Greater Melbourne. It's uh, 200 days. We think when this current extension is up, uh, we're going to be uh, pretty much on uh, seven months since the pandemic began of stage four lockdown in Victoria. That'd have to be the highest, some of the highest levels of lockdown anywhere in the world, including places like Peru, which went for ages. Yeah, basically unique in the world, I'd say. Certainly unique in the first world, you'd reckon. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. Mm. We'll speak again at some stage, Pierce, and uh, thanks uh, for enabling me to speak to you and to the people listening to your radio station. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.